Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes below. I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting America's energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, show them some love. They make the show possible, and we certainly appreciate that. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. And uh, at this point, I would even go so far as to say you're incredibly frustrated ATM of reckless opinion because this is about the eighth time I've tried to record this episode. So we'll see if it sticks this time. I've had some technical issues with my uh, the recording software I'm using. I've... Uh, uh, evidently, if this works, then the problem was that I had about 5,000 tabs open in my browsers, plural, which maybe the computer didn't like. Uh, so let's see if this one works. Let's see. Or, or you know, maybe it just won't. We don't know. Maybe this episode will never see the light of day. Who can say? We don't know. But we're going to persist on. We're going to try and make this work. Um, all right, so... Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Let's get into it. Uh, I'm rocking with probably about my, um, I don't know, at this point, my third cup of uh, Pike Place Roast, sort of that middle-of-the-road Starbucks uh, uh, blend they've got because that's what's in the cupboard. And at this point, you know, we're just hoping this thing works. All right, so let's get down to our housekeeping. Uh, Got a couple of... Uh, reviews on iTunes uh, from me741 and California Dreaming for You, who left very nice reviews, five stars, some nice comments. I very much appreciate it. I'm always deeply honored when somebody takes the time to to write a review, and I, I can't tell you how much that, that stuff means to me. Um, so thank you so much. Also, if you do want to leave a review, please do so. I really like that. It lets me know that uh, that you're enjoying the show and we're going in the right direction here. And if you're not enjoying the show, just go listen to something else. Go find something you like that's uh, that's not this. That won't hurt my feelings. That's fine. I'll never even know. Um, meanwhile, and a lot of you guys do this, but if you uh, aren't doing this and want to, uh, reach out to me. Let me know a topic you want me to cover. You want uh, a question you want me to handle, something like that, by all means. Uh, you can reach out to me on my email, which is jordan.driscoll at OGGN.com, or you can find me as a great number of folks have so far, and that is on LinkedIn. Um, I do read every single email, and I try to reply to them 
uh, as I can, but I do read them all. I do read every single one. In fact, I probably read more of y'all's emails than I do uh, ones from my day job, if I can at all help it, because, well, y'all, y'all's emails are a lot more fun, quite frankly. Uh, anyway, so here's a couple of shows we've got coming up. We're going to do a show on China's energy crisis, uh, the Achilles heel of the People's uh, Communist uh, Party of China. And we're going to do an episode on why North Korea is such a pain in the ass to deal with. And also a follow-up episode on the Turkish elections, which are happening as I am recording this. So by the time this gets out to you guys, they'll all be um, done or the first round will be done and they may be heading to a, a, a runoff election. We'll see. But uh, I'll be keeping you guys updated on that as it happens. Um, all right. So. Tonight, I got asked a question by one of y'all, one of my one of my thirteen dedicated listeners. Love you guys, and uh, it was to talk about something from a more modern context that I've actually already covered from a historical context in a prior episode. And of course, it's two countries that most people are tired of hearing about. The first is the prequel and sequel to the Soviet Union, Russia, the country that's a whole lot of fun to talk shit about up until it's really not. Um, and the second country is naturally Ukraine, which you typically only hear about when something has gone horribly wrong. And tonight will be no different. Um, at any rate, I know what you're thinking. You already covered this. Yes, I have. I covered it from the historical context. But tonight we're actually going to hit this up, um, talking about some of the more modern stuff that I think is relevant. Um, and we'll kind of go from there. And there's a couple of things um, in the comment that got sent to me about this is, is the Republicans lately – um, there's a segment of the Republicans that are starting to, uh, yeah, they're starting to bitch about the amount of resources that we're giving to Ukraine and suggesting we should just let Russia have it and what my opinion on that is. My opinion, to be very clear, is I think that's a bad idea. Listen, I am not typically one for foreign intervention. Generally speaking, I think we do too much of that stuff as it is. That being said, there are exceptions to every rule, and in my opinion, this is kind of one of them. And um, and then I'm going to explain why. But first off, let's just hear what some of these folks have said. I went and did a little bit of research here. So you've got, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican uh, representative from Georgia. As I've said before, sorry, guys. Uh, at any rate, she says, quote, no more money to Ukraine. That country needs to find peace, not war. Okay, Marjorie, listen. Uh they didn't go out of their way to start this thing, okay? Russia came at them, okay? That's that's how this works. They had peace, and then Russia decided they didn't like the peace, and they were going to come and invade. So, yeah, okay, like, let's settle down. Uh, Steve Bannon, former Trump White House chief strategist, we are not a European power, we are a Pacific power, quote. Um, okay, so I guess the Normandy and Omaha beach landings in World War II, that was a total fluke. Uh, hmm, I don't know. Donald Trump, if you look at what's going on, we're spending $150 billion, and Ukraine's only spending about $25 billion. I would say that's not right. Well, sure, Donald, but hey, guess what? We've got the largest economy in the world. The Ukraine is the fucking Ukraine. I'm just surprised they have $25 billion to spend on their military. Let's get real here, okay? Um, Ron DeSantis. While the U.S. has many vital national interests, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Do any of you guys remember who the fuck Neville Chamberlain was? Do we, did we not learn any lessons from the appeasement of Germany back in the day? Okay, so let's get into this. I'm going to tell you why I think it's important 
that we uh, that we see to it this thing does not get conquered by Russia. And um, so the first thing is, let's establish collectively why it is Russia is invading Ukraine. And there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is the simplest, and that's ego. Vladimir Putin is a former KGB officer, and in his youth and his rise to power came during the golden days of the Soviet Union. Now he's the president, and um, I say that with air quotes, of the Russian Federation. And the problem is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia lost a lot of territory and about half their population. Think about that. Tax revenues, natural resources, manpower, warm water ports, all of those cut in half from the days back when it was the other superpower on the planet. And we're going to talk about a few of those points a little bit more in depth as we go, but Putin grew up in a time when Russia was the other superpower. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, what was left over in Russia was not what it once was. So there's going to be a drive there to uh, put that back together. And Putin has long desired to restore Russia to the former glory that it had. And don't just take my word for it. Look at his actions. In 2008, he invaded Georgia, a former Soviet breakaway, and bit off a chunk of that. In 2014, he invaded Ukraine and seized the Crimea, one of the most important warm water ports in the former Soviet Union. And in both cases, the world effectively did nothing to stop him. So with no one in the mood to fight him, he basically just looked at his generals in 2022 and said, yeah, lads, let's have a bit more of that. And most people don't even realize it, but Russia's even signed a treaty of union with Belarus, another former Soviet breakaway. And Belarus has agreed to merge into the Russian Federation to form a new country called the Union State. Yeah. This is all part of a plan, such as it is, to reassemble the lost territories and to bring them back into the fold. And we've been watching it happen for the better part of 15 years, piece by piece. That's the scheme here. That's the score. Now, you may be asking yourself, why? And, you know, I say ego, and that's probably a little bit of an oversimplification. But the reality of it is he wants to see the the scope of that, that nation as it was restored. And there's more to it. There's a strategic and tactical element of it, and that a geographic element, such as the Great European Plain. Now, the Great European Plain is a massive expanse of plains that roll across Eastern Europe and across the European side of Russia, uh, basically from Central Europe all the way to the Ural Mountains. What makes this important is that the plains are, from a military aspect, the hardest thing to defend. To be completely fair to Russia, in the last hundred years, they've been invaded and occupied twice across the European Plain. Okay, by neighbors in the West. If you're Russia, that's not great. It's already happened twice in the past hundred years. That's a thing that's going to be concerning. During the height of the Soviet Union, they controlled a significant portion of the Great European Plain. Uh, they pushed its borders to the West all the way up to Germany and to the mountains there, giving themselves a much more defensible position from any sort of a land-based attack. And since the fall of the Soviet Union... Most of the Central and Eastern European Soviet breakaway colonies have now joined NATO, which means these countries aren't even neutral anymore. Um, but the, the fact they've joined the very military alliance that was founded on stopping and containing Russia. If you're a former Soviet KGB officer, now dictator-come-president of the largest rump state of the former Soviet Union, you might understandably look at that situation and think, eh, that doesn't seem very good, guys. Hell, 
if Ukraine, uh, Ukraine does join NATO, Russia's largest city and their national capital, i.e. Moscow, will only be 275 miles from the NATO border. That's a shorter drive than from Abilene, Texas to Houston, a drive that I make regularly for work. And now with Finland joining NATO, Russia's second largest city, St. Petersburg, is only 95 miles away from the NATO border. Yeah, if you're a Russian general, that doesn't look real good from a tactical perspective. So there's that. The next major reason why Russia's invading Ukraine is energy. Yeah, yeah, a big factor. And let's talk about that for a minute. Russia might have a be a massive country from a territory standpoint, but its economy isn't much larger than Spain's. Think about that. And for the most part, the Russian economy is based around oil and gas. Russia is the second larger, largest producer of oil. They have the largest proven reserves of natural gas. Uh, oil and gas provides 50% of the federal budget for the Russian Federation and 35% of their national gross domestic product. It's effectively a petrostate, and it's the only one in Europe. Now, the biggest challenge they have is, again, geography. Most of the gas fields are out in Siberia, and they have to get piped into Europe through these old Soviet pipelines that used to run through Ukraine, and we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But up until recent history, most of these Soviet pipelines selling gas to Europe were going through Ukraine, which, as a newly independent country, meant that Ukraine was entitled to charge Russia transit fees for the gas moving through their country into the West, which they did to the tune of billions of dollars. Now, we all know how much Russian natural gas went into Europe for decades, and we know that if you're sitting in Moscow looking at your balance sheet, you might realize that any disruption of that natural gas or energy into Europe would cause major problems for your economy since a full 50% of your federal budget is based off revenue that you've got coming off oil and gas. That's a big, hairy deal. Don't need any disruptions. And there were two major challenges to this largest source of Russian revenue. The first one is, of course, Europe's commitment to being oil and gas-free by 2050. Now, the reality of it is that's going to be a challenge, and we can have all the debates about how likely it is they'll be you know, carbon neutral or whatever by 2050. Uh, I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. But that is their stated objective. And if you're Russia, you're looking at that goal going, ooh, we got a real problem on our hands. That's not that far away. Um, and regardless of whether you think it's realistic or not, you know damn well Putin is going to be keeping this in mind. After all, gas sales to Europe made more than a third of the Russian government money. So by invading it, he's setting back energy transition. And he's allowing Russia to make a move while they still had a strong card to play with their energy power. The second major disruption to the Russian petrostate is Ukraine itself. In 2012, and honestly, I either knew this and forgot about it, or I just didn't even know this was a thing, but in 2012, Ukraine discovered massive reserves of natural gas around the Crimean Peninsula. Likewise, Shell was discovered in, you guessed it, the Donbass region of Ukraine. Wow, how convenient. The places that they say they really want to pacify and take over the Donbass and Crimea. What are the fucking odds? Groundbreaking. Just groundbreaking. So what, by seemed, what seemed as absolutely dumb luck, uh, they already had a ton of Soviet pipelines running through the country to the west. They had mass 
massive gas storage facilities, courtesy of the former USSR, Ukraine was surprisingly well-positioned to take advantage of these new discoveries back in 2012. And by 2013, the Ukrainian government had even authorized Shell and ExxonMobil to begin exploration and drilling in the Crimea and Donbass. And what do you know, only months later, Russia invades the Crimea, Shell puts out, uh, pulls out all of their business, as does ExxonMobil, uh, Russia even seizes the Shell and Exxon's left-behind equipment in the Crimea, uh, which, I, to my knowledge, from what I can tell, they never actually returned it. They just kept it. And, um, yeah, all of a sudden, the idea that Ukraine's going to become um, a major energy player in Europe to compete with Russia is knocked out because Russia has destabilized the region. Boy, that's awfully convenient, isn't it? Okay. So, <clears throat> Russia and let's be clear, had to dismember Ukraine. Because if they allowed it to become an energy power, Europe would have access to closer, cheaper, and friendlier oil and gas resources than what were coming out of Russia. And we all remember how much Russian state relies on oil and gas, right? So this was an imperative. I mean, hell, every president since Reagan has been wringing their hands over Europe's addiction to cheap Russian natural gas. And the first time that affordable and an easy solution is discovered, Russia takes it off the board. And now they're looking to add it to their own natural reserves. This isn't a territorial squabble, DeSantis. This is a strategic move with massive implications for the energy sector. We don't Russia don't want Russia, as the Western oil and gas world, to have this unlimited monopoly over natural gas in that part of the planet. They've already got enough. They don't need to be knocking out the other players, especially the players who are more friendly towards uh, Western nations. So, yeah, this goes beyond a lot more than just Putin wants to redraw the map with a larger blob for Russia and a smaller blob for somebody else. This is very much a play to control energy. That is the thing that many people do not seem to be keeping in mind on this, at least in Washington. Okay, so what's the next thing? The next thing is year-round ice-free warm water ports. Navy power has always been key to any world power. And at the height of the Soviet Union, they had a number of year-round ice-free ports. But since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia really only has access to one. Right? Let's work through this right quick. You've got the naval base at St. Petersburg, Russia's second largest city. And it's frozen from May to December. Excuse me, from December to May. Likewise, Russia's main port in the Pacific, Vladivostok, is frozen from December to April. These ports can only be used via icebreakers during those months. The only other port they have that is warm water, i.e. they can sail in and out of without icebreakers or just being trapped there year-round, is in the far north, ironically enough, at Murmansk and the Kola Peninsula. Now, that's a problem if you only have one warm water port. The U.S. has... Tons of them. We, we're tripping over them. It's not a problem for us. But for Russia, it is. When you're a country that big that stretches across two continents and you only have one port that's operational year-round, that's a strategic issue. So, obviously, they had to go get a place with warm water ports. And guess what? Crimea is warm water. It feeds into the Mediterranean, which lets them get the Atlantic and the rest of the world's oceans. And it's already got a ton of Soviet military installation equipment there, which makes it easy to move right in. Okay, so. <clears throat> Crimea is 
very strategically located from a naval perspective. And also, Russian ports have always been easily blockaded by the West. Let's try that again. My Russian's a little dodgy. Uh, Murmansk and St. Petersburg are basically right right in the Baltic neighborhood, which is effectively just a NATO lake at this point, uh, easily blocked and easily stopped. You've got Vladivostok on the Pacific, but it empties out right next to Japan, which is a super friend of the U.S. along with South Korea. So the Russian Navy is very, very heavily contained from a naval standpoint. And we all know the state of their army, obviously. So they really need their navy to not be that contained. Ergo, getting access to a major port like Crimea that is warm year-round, that it can sail in and out of year-round, is critical. And who are they building a relationship with and trying to enhance their relations and pull them out of NATO? Turkey, who controls the Dardanelles, which gets you in and out of the Black Sea. This is all three-dimensional chess that Putin's trying to play, Right. And we are so busy squabbling over the nonsense that, oh, it's a territorial dispute. No, it's not. We're being outfoxed by a guy that likes to ride around on horseback without a shirt on. I mean, come on, guys. Pull it together. Okay? The other thing that Russia has to consider is their population. Okay? Russia's population is facing a crisis. They have an internal demographic problem. Since the fall of the Soviet Union... Russia's deaths have exceeded their births for every single year since 1991. Think about that. Since COVID-19, Russia's undergone the largest peacetime decline in population in its history. Think about this. Yeah, we know the United States and India and China have larger populations because it's India and China, and of course they did, got a billion people. But think about this. Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Mexico all have larger populations than Russia, and they're growing, not shrinking. Like I said before, when the Soviet Union fell, Russia lost half its population and a full 40% of its GDP and industrial capacity. Those are big fucking numbers. So here's the thing you have to keep in mind. (coughs) Russia is in a situation where their population is diminishing, where they're at a point where the energy that they have control over, the thing that they can use to be a lever to enhance their geopolitical power, is growing weaker by the day the closer people get to transitioning away from oil and gas. And yes, it's ethereal and it's a long way off and all the things that we all already know. But if you're Russia, you have to take into account what if it does work? What if it does happen? Your population is shrinking. If your population is shrinking, that means that not only is your tax base reducing, that also means that your able-bodied men who are of fighting age is reduced, and your navy's blocked in by all of your NATO enemies and you know American super friends. So if Russia's going to make a move, they have to do it now. While they still have a sizable population, while they still have presumably a military that can operate. For them, this was an imperative. It had to happen. And we have to think about it through the lens of what they had to accomplish right now. This is not a territorial dispute. It's not as simple as that. It is much, much, much bigger picture if you're Vladimir Putin. And we've got to get in his head and figure out what it is he's trying to accomplish if we're going to 
counter that or at least deal with him on some sort of a level beyond just sound bites for, you know, Fox News or the people's MSNBC. Okay. Also keep this in mind. Historically, Russia or Moscow has always taken riskier foreign policy gambles whenever oil prices are high. When oil prices were high, they invaded Afghanistan. When oil prices were high in 2008, they invaded Georgia. When they were high in 2014, they invaded Crimea. When they hit their high, they invaded uh, Ukraine. And put it to you this way, in 2022, the same month that the oil prices hit their 2014 levels is the month they launched their invasion. Whenever oil prices are high, Russia feels emboldened from a military standpoint because they're bringing in money and they can afford to fund up their sovereign wealth fund and deal with sanctions and plow forward with whatever risky gamble foreign policy they want to do. Okay, so now that we've established these are the things that Russia has to take in mind. These are the things that they have to think about. The question is, where do we go from here? What is going to happen? Well, to quote President Zelensky of Ukraine, everything began with Crimea, and everything will end with Crimea. Now, when the war started in 2022, everyone, and I mean everyone, myself included, predicted Ukraine would swiftly fall. The Russian army was generally considered to be the second most capable in the world behind the United States, and Ukraine only had leftover Soviet equipment and a much smaller military with far less money available to it to uh, fund any kind of a defense. And yet, here we are on day, what, 440, 450, somewhere in there, and Russia's lost tens of thousands of people, thousands of tanks. Help! they just had their Victory Day parade, with no aircraft to fly over and only one tank in the parade, which is a lot less than the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of tanks they've had every other year prior to now. That's telling. Okay, so, so far, we also know that Ukraine is talking about launching a major counteroffensive any day now. Ukraine's emboldened. They've got tons of funding from the West, and they're stopping Russia and putting a counter to them, which I argue, for all the reasons we don't want Russia to break free and have, you know, a military that can run free reign everywhere and have an energy stranglehold on Europe and Asia, this is, this is the stakes we're fighting for, right? Okay, or at least that we're funding the Ukraine to fight for. Okay, so let's also keep in mind Ukraine has stated at this point, now that they're emboldened and they're, you know, they've been going on for a year and a half at this point, that they're going to retake all of their lost territory and restore their country to its borders prior to the Russian occupation. Now, all in all, that sounds pretty good, but that includes taking Crimea, the peninsula, back. And taking Crimea is a Herculean task. Hell, I could, and this is not an exaggeration, I could do an entire podcast episode on the tactical difficulties of militarily taking Crimea. Um, and if you want to hear that episode, one person, write me in and tell me you want me to do an episode with a military analysis of taking Crimea. Because at the drop of a dime, I will do that. Um, I don't know that I can really tie it into oil and gas necessarily, but, you know, fuck it. I will do that episode if somebody wants it. Um, anyway... Taking Crimea, without getting into all the nuts and bolts, very hard to do militarily. Um, 
And the Kremlin is going to be willing to gamble lives and treasure and escalation because it's so geopolitically valuable given the warm water ports and the gas fields. They've gone this far. They have to win this one. And the reality of it is this might actually be like life or death for Putin if you think about it, right? I mean, consider this. Everything here, Putin has gone so far down this rabbit hole, he has dedicated so much time and treasure and blood into making this happen, that if Russian oligarchs are suffering through these sanctions and dealing with the things they're dealing with for too long, and there is no stated win, there is no actual victory to be found of any kind they can scrape by, this could be how somebody decides to whack Putin and, and try a different hand at things. Putin has to have a win here. That's the thing. He has to find a way to get to a win, and he doesn't know how to do it yet. That's why you see him keep doing his little nuclear saber rattling, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, Crimea from Moscow's perspective. So if you look at a map of the actual conflict with um, with Ukraine— Russia was, you know, they invaded from the north and tried to get Kiev, the capital. They invaded from the south up through the Crimea. And you'll notice that the northern invasion fell apart and, you know, they basically had to pull back into Belarus. The southern invasion has been much more successful. And the reason is they had Crimea at their back. They had a, a, a almost an island fortress they could spill out of and, and do their thing. Crimea is really critical in this whole equation. And Russia knows that if they can retake Crimea, if they can hold Crimea, then they've got a base of operations, not only for warm water ports, but to do all the things they do. On the other hand, Ukraine has to get Crimea back. It's incredibly important to them. One, it gives them access to the, the oil fields and the gas fields specifically that economically will help their country rebuild and be extremely valuable. On the other hand, They've already seen what happens if they let Russia keep Crimea for too long. If they let Russia keep Crimea, all that's going to happen is Russia's going to build up. They're going to rebuild their forces. They're going to replan invasion. And in a couple of years down the road, they'll do the same thing all over again. Ukraine will never be safe so long as Crimea is in Russian hands. They, if you're Ukrainian, look at that situation and go, Russia keeping Ukraine is an unacceptable risk to our nation. So they are going to have to fight to take it even though there's no easy way to do that because Ukraine is incredibly, or excuse me, Crimea is incredibly difficult to take. So these are the two polar opposites. Putin has to have this win geopolitically, and the Ukraine can't afford to let Crimea remain in Russian hands for all of the reasons. So let's pretend for a moment that against all the odds, Ukraine manages to stage a ground assault, and take back Crimea from Russia, which, again, incredibly difficult. I have questions about whether or not they could pull it off, but that's, again, that's a subject for another episode that um, someone's going to have to ask for. But let's pretend they do it. Let's pretend they make it happen. So the, the first problem they're going to run into is that Crimea is, at this point, ethnically Russian, okay? Originally, the Crimea was populated by Tartars way back in the day. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, Stalin deported most of the Tartars during the Cold War and forcibly moved Russians to Crimea. 
Since Russia invaded in 2014, they've imported even more Russians and they deported Ukrainians. So even if Ukraine retakes the Crimea, which they have to, it's a security imperative for them, they're going to run into a situation they haven't seen before. For the first time, Ukrainians are going to be seen as the occupiers, not the liberators. Because, again, the people that live there today are predominantly Russian. They're not retaking lands that are being occupied by Russians. They're now occupying lands that are lived on by Russians who have been there for potentially decades and decades. You know, now you Ukraine may be, what, forced to deal with an actual scene as, as conquerors? They're going to have to have some sort of a partisan or contentious occupation? What do they do? If they take it over, do they forcefully deport Russians and move Ukrainians in? I mean, it's a lose-lose scenario if you're Ukraine, but it's one they can't afford to ignore. That's the corner they've been backed into. Likewise, as I said before, Putin's war has been a complete omni-shambles from the beginning between sanctions, loss of lives, Finland joining NATO, and the revelation that the once globally feared Russian army is nothing more than a paper tiger that's about as intimidating as a junior varsity volleyball team rolling up to the Super Bowl, Putin has to show some kind of a win. He's essentially in too deep, and if he loses, it's very conceivable he'll be deposed by someone internally. So this is the linchpin, Crimea. If there's any chance of Russia escalating this conflict to the tune of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, it will most likely come if Russia is about to lose Crimea. That's the single more strategically important part of this little Ukrainian adventure. Ukraine's best bet might well be to retake everything except you, uh, the Crimea and then lay siege to it rather than an outright assault. One, it'd be less bloody. Um, but if they lay siege to it, that could work. You see, the only way that the, the peninsula of Crimea gets water, like 85% of their water, comes from an um, a, uh, aqueduct that was built from the mainland of Ukraine into Crimea. That got damned off when Russia took it back in 2014. When the Russians launched an invasion now, uh, they blew up the dam and they've got water flowing back to it. But until that happened, they were having to fly or drive or boat in all the fresh water on the island. And there were huge water restrictions and all of that. If, you re re uh, if Ukraine retakes that northern border and they seal off that water supply again, they could effectively starve the Russians out and force them to surrender Ukraine um, rather than have to take it through a a very difficult attack. Now, <clears throat> that brings us to a couple other scenarios. I mean, this could at least force the Russians to the negotiation table, right? I mean, if, if it looks like they're about to lose it and their people are going to get thirsted into submission, um, well, that gets us to the negotiating table with three possible scenarios as I see it. So the first scenario is, Crimea returns to the Ukraine diplomatically, along with all of Ukraine's other occupied territories that Russia invaded. That's one option. Basically, just return everything to the pre-war status quo. Russia pulls out of, U of every part of Ukraine, Donbass, Crimea, the whole thing. We call it a, a wash, and the war ends. This is one I don't think is terribly likely. One, as I've said before, I think Putin's in way too deep. He's got to have some kind of a win, and that's just what it is. On the other hand, Ukraine has stated that is the goal they're aiming for, is to get all of that back. I don't think Russia is going to give it to them, quite frankly. The second option I see at the negotiating table is 
Russia returns all the territory in Ukraine except for Crimea. Now, this one is difficult for the Ukrainians to accept because, one, there's nothing to stop Russia from just having another go at it in a couple of years, and Ukraine knows it because they've already done it once. Um, and two, this might return the majority of Ukrainian territory to them, but it keeps them from getting their big gas fields that they just discovered that were going to be a big boost on their economy. Um, not to mention, if Russia controls Crimea, that pretty much makes you know the rest of Ukraine's coastline on the Black Sea completely useless. Russia will just be able to dominate that one way or the other. So I don't think Ukraine will accept that alternative. Uh, Crimea is just much too important for them for that to happen. The third option that I could see, and this one gets interesting, Russia surrenders all of its occupied land except for Crimea. Crimea becomes an independent nation that is demilitarized except for maybe UN peacekeepers. Think about that. Crimea has talked about breaking away and becoming an autonomous state in the past from Ukraine, but it's never really gone anywhere. Given the fact that between the Tartars, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the just complete shit show that it's been with people trying to monkey with the population of that peninsula, maybe it's best for them to become their own independent demilitarized nation that neither Russia nor Ukraine controls. Now, if that were to happen, Russia doesn't get the warm water port they wanted, but they also don't have a potentially hostile NATO power in that base instead. And that might be enough of a bargaining chip to get them to sign on board and call it a win. Likewise, Ukraine doesn't get Crimea back, but it's not in the hands of a hostile power that's proven a willingness to invade them at the drop of a dime. That's what you call compromise. That's a plan I could see working. Now, what do I think the odds of that happening are? Well, I think the odds of getting them to the bargaining table seriously with the intent of talking is going to depend on pretty much Russia either being bled dry or there's some sort of a major regime change internally in Russia. Um, or maybe some sort of a really decisive victory or the West just cutting off supplies to Ukraine. But either way, no matter how you slice it, we definitely need to prevent Russia from doing what they're trying to do here. They're trying to have a stranglehold on the energy market in Europe, and that's going to have ripple effects into Asia and ultimately to the rest of the world. And, you know, also we don't necessarily want to encourage them to go around invading countries, and they've gotten away with that one too many times. So I say the kibosh has to be put on this. Can we get them to the, uh, the negotiating table? That entirely depends on whether or not we can run the clock out on this game until they have no choice. Or if Ukraine is wildly successful and they lay siege to... Crimea and force them to the table. And if that happens, we'll see which one of these options happens, or maybe it's something I haven't even thought of. I mean, again, you know, uh, if the peace plan comes from some guy in West Texas with a microphone, then wouldn't that be a shock? Anyway, that's all we got time for tonight. Let me know if you like this one. It appears this particular recording has actually worked all the way through, which is kind of shocking. I, I, didn't think it would because I've done this so many times now, but it seems like we fixed the issue. It was all the all the tabs I had open. I guess I learned a valuable lesson, didn't I? Anyway, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I escalate to de-escalate. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast. 
a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.